This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which I think today I will start out with some good news, because you know there's a lot of bad news out there. We'll get to that in a moment. But there is some good stuff going on, and although I find it very odd to be rooting for a GOP-led Congress, they are setting out to override President Obama's veto of the bill they passed, which would allow American citizens to sue the government of Saudi Arabia. The excuse that we mentioned in this program a couple of weeks ago that was first being offered for why they, why they you know, couldn't actually let this bill become law was that it would damage our relations with a, a valuable ally, the Saudis. The administration has now changed its tune and is trying to tell us that, well, really, this is bad because it would set a precedent where the U.S. government could be sued over its misdeeds, which doesn't sound like a bad deal to us. But you may want to check out uh, the Who, What, Why website, which is brought to you by the enterprising and crusading investigative journalist Russ Baker. They have a piece on there with former Florida Senator and Governor Bob Graham, who was a part of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, who's been tirelessly working to get that 28 pages of censored findings on the relationship of the 9-11 attackers, the 9-11 terrorists, and people in the Saudi government. Suffice it to say, without getting into details, that such links existed. And that the Saudi government, or people in the Saudi government, or people affiliated with the Saudi royal family, are in some ways responsible for what happened on 9-11, and the evidence suggests they were, well, don't you think they should face their day in court? Well, this correspondent does, and I hope you agree. And I hope the House will vote. I think the Senate vote was 97 to 1, which is a little unusual. Anyway, we assume this is going to pass through both houses of Congress with flying colors and will become the law of the land, to which we say, good. Now, the big story of this past week, I guess, was the fact that... uh, they had a debate at Hofstra University or Sam's Hofbrau, I'm not sure. And it does seem, by all accounts, even by the account of the Republican right, Mr. Donald Trump didn't do so well. Now, Trump himself at first said he thought he did great, but I guess what a lot of people pointed out to him that others had a different opinion, he blamed it on the microphone. And in a way, we do have to agree, because it seems pretty apparent that the microphone then conveyed his attitude and opinions to the public, which which can be a problem. Admittedly, if the microphone had been shut off, those opinions wouldn't have been disseminated, but, well, we're not sure that was a good solution either. Now, rather curiously, when this debate was going on, uh, I I did not have access to a television. I was doing some work out in the yard and had it on the radio, so I I missed that split-screen view of the two candidates... um, rolling their eyes at one another. But uh, evidently, to most of the public, Trump did not look presidential. Of course, having said that, I've been inspecting the various websites, New York Times, Nate Silver, 270towin.com, to see what this might mean in the real world, a change in polling numbers. And so far, from what I can understand, nothing is apparent. I mean, I'm not aware of any great jump in any of the states that are that are critical to this. Some do wonder whether debates, you know, mean anything. 
You might recall back in, in 2004 when John Kerry seemed to have mopped the floor with George W. Bush. Mm, didn't seem to give him that big of a boost in the polls. Now, the Sacramento Bee had a little section titled Monday's Debate Quantified, which I thought was sort of interesting. Time speaking, Hillary Clinton, 41 minutes. Donald Trump, 44 minutes. Word spoken, Hillary Clinton, a little over 6,000. Trump, almost 8,000. Questions asked, Clinton, 17. Trump, 15. Questions dodged, <laughs> like that one. Clinton, zero. Trump, four. Interruptions by opponent. Clinton, 46. Trump, five. Fact checks by moderator. Clinton, zero. Trump, five. And assertions that opponent was untruthful. Clinton, 10. Trump, 26. Sounding off in the debates, Andy Borowitz noted that uh, in his spoof headline that Donald Trump asserts that if Hillary Clinton shows up for the next debate, he's not going to be there because she kept interrupting him and bringing up things about his past. And, and doggone it, he won't stand for it. At any rate... A lot of people are trying to quantify the odds in, in this presidential race. And although not long ago, the odds looked to be, or at least according to, I think, Nate Silver's website, 88 to 12 in favor of Clinton, he now has it basically something closer to 60-40. Or maybe it was 70-30. I'm mixing them up. But there seems to be consensus that the odds are leaning to Clinton, but it is by no means assured that she will be elected. Listeners to this program will note that we are not huge Hillary Clinton fans. That's for sure. But in the opinion of this program, Donald Trump is really not fit to be president. We do note that when he made the comment that he was temperamentally superior during the debate, the audience spontaneously broke out into laughter. Because as he was making that statement, he looked like he was just inches away from throwing a shoe. Anyway, we need to move on to a different topic, but I think for our joke of the day, we will quote the writers from Jimmy Fallon, who said that a lot of celebrities are sharing their views of the election. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Bruce Springsteen called Trump a moron, which is why now Trump's starting a rumor that Springsteen really wasn't born in the USA. I do think a lot of this stuff is getting to me. I, I honest to God, had a series of nightmares a couple of nights ago wherein Donald Trump was saying more and more outrageous things, more and more stupid things, and everything he said made him that much more popular, and his poll numbers started moving in a positive direction. I certainly hope these dreams were not prophetic. We shall see. And let's go out of our usual order of things, because that's how we've been doing things of late, and just kind of go to the miscellaneous file. I think we hinted on last week's program that NASA was uh, saying it was going to have an announcement early this week, about Jupiter's moon Europa. And I have to say, NASA should quit making these tantalizing announcements because what they had fell a bit flat. Turns out they did think they see some water plumes on Europa based on some observations from the Hubble telescope, which Islam has suspected, but in the end they decided the evidence wasn't definitive. So why make a big deal out of it? Mr. McMillan points out that the obvious answer to that is probably to try and induce some funding. But, um, well, maybe, maybe. NASA's running into a funding hurdle right now in their efforts to go lasso an asteroid and nudge it into an orbit around the moon where we can inspect it at our leisure. The $19 billion that that might cost is being, well, as an example of government waste. But our position on this program is... NASA, which is 
let's say, affiliated with the Pentagon, an awful lot of uh, the research they do is, is military in nature, is a better place to spend the money than on, say, bombs and aircraft and things that blow up and kill people and maim, etc. Pentagon's going to get their money anyway. Shouldn't we spend it on some stuff that's kind of benign and cool? In the case of lassoing an asteroid, might give us some information on how we can prevent the Earth getting smacked by a bigger one in the future, which is kind of important. NASA is apparently also taking a page from the Radio Parallax playbook about, I don't know, 10 years ago. We did a segment talking about how the astrologic sign that you think you are is probably wrong. In fact, the odds of it being wrong is something like 86%. Not only that, because of the turning of the Earth on its axis, acting like a top over the years, it spun a bit out of the path it was on 3,000 years ago when they enumerated all these different signs of the zodiac. And so now, one of the consequences is that there's a 13th constellation of the zodiac, which a lot of you belong to. It is Ophiuchus, the serpent bearer. A lot of you that think you're Scorpio actually are not. How does this affect modern astrology? Well, we don't know because modern astrology, like ancient astrology, is pretty much a fraud through and through. Well, perhaps fraud isn't exactly the right word in all instances. Let's just say wishful thinking. I was observing the other night that Mars had now entered Sagittarius. <laughs> I had to look up and see what that meant to astrologers, Mars and Sagittarius. And there was a bunch of stuff on a website about how if on the day you're born, Mars is in Sagittarius, it means, boy, are you unpredictable, boy this, boy that. All I want to say is if these generalizations that were made about this and that had any validity, you'd be able to establish them as statistically significant. But they're not. Not only that, it depends on whose astrology you're using, because the Greeks had one version, the Babylonians had another, the Chinese had another, the Persians had another, etc., 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 and none of them agree. If there were some valid generalizations to be made about, you know, what it means when the moon's in Gemini, don't you think there'd be some consistency in these? Anyway, enough said about that. Although we don't read our astrologic column in the daily papers, uh, uh, we do have a weakness for the Marilyn Vos Savant section, reputedly the world's smartest woman. And, and no, we don't know her sign. She had a thing in last week's paper about um, about old movies. Someone was talking about how they were doing some DVD, tra- DVD transfers of some old movies. And the question was posed, wasn't well, that ridiculous with modern technology? I mean, I mean, how are we going to extract more data out of these old films This was based on the assumption that the old films contained less information than what modern DVD technology can reveal. Therefore, it shouldn't matter. Well, she set the listener straight, pointing out that film, even from 60, 70 years ago, has more information in it than your high-definition television can assess. Meaning that it is meaningful to have transfers to DVD. It should be an improvement over prior forms of display, your VHS tape, etc. But uh, Marilyn's comments probably come as no surprise to anybody who's worked with film. The detail available in film technology still is superior to that of what you can get from television or screen technology. Although I realize some of you out there in listening audience probably know a great deal about this particular subject, and feel free to drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax and educate us so we can learn something, and pass it along. And you know, I don't feel like doing a quote and a quip and a stat today, although we may do a few by accident. 
But I know if I don't do the good and the bad and the ugly, people are going to write. So, Mr. McMillan? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for RoboCops. After police in Los Angeles deployed a high-tech robot to sneak up on an armed suspect and snatch his gun in the midst of a standoff. Said the police, he looked up and realized his gun was gone. The shocked suspect then surrendered. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for technology with the news that a study has found that overweight dieters who wore activity tracking devices lost significantly less weight than those who dieted and exercised without such a device. Researchers speculated that the daily readouts may provide a false sense of accomplishment. And lastly, it was an ugly week last week for school spirit. After high school cheerleaders in Provo, Utah, were told not to wear their uniforms to class on practice day because a male student complained that the short skirts were causing him to have impure thoughts. We would like to add that impure thoughts are just a part of high school, as with life itself, and that, yeah, we're flabbergasted that the authorities at the school actually acted upon the complaint of this knucklehead and ordered the cheerleaders not to wear their skirts because some guy might, you know, have a problem with it. But that's where we are today. One jackass gets to complain and everybody else has to modify their behavior in accordance with someone's objections. There seems to be little assessment over the reasonableness of some of these objections. And speaking of stupidity, the week provides in their Only in America section this. The Arizona Supreme Court has upheld a state law that could result in criminal charges against parents or other caregivers who change diapers or bathe children. The law forbids anyone touching, quote, any part of the genitals, anus, or female breasts, unquote, of children under 15, and it does not require that the contact be sexual in nature. The Arizona Supreme Court said anyone wrongly charged could raise, quote, lack of sexual motivation, unquote, as an, quote, affirmative defense, unquote. And no, we don't know what qualifications you need to be on the Arizona Supreme Court, but it does seem pretty clear that common sense doesn't enter into the equation anywhere. All right, and just as a random item, more random than usual on this program, I would note that when I didn't have my glasses on, I glanced down at the B yesterday and noticed a headline that I thought said, Economist Gets Prison for Destroying Shrines. The actual headline was, Extremist Gets Prison, once I put my glasses on. But it did occur to me in retrospect that, you know, putting some economists in prison probably isn't that bad of an idea. When you look at some of the ideas they've cooked up and which have been implemented, well, prison might be appropriate. But um, let's return to making smart-ass remarks about what's in the news, shall we? It turns out that China has apparently lost control of its space station. China has apparently lost control of its space station named Tiangong-1 and does not know where the debris will fall to Earth next year. 
It is at this particular juncture that if you're so inclined, you would then make a joke about poor Chinese driving skills. But here at Radio Parallax, we're not going to go there. You may or may not be reassured by the statement from Wu Ping. He's director of China's Manned Space Engineering Office. He said, based on our calculations and analysis, most parts of the space lab will burn up during falling. This is being characterized as an apparent admission that authorities don't know for sure. Now, it should be noted that most old, large spacecraft are taken down in a planned descent that plops them into an empty patch of the Pacific Ocean. But satellite trackers suspect China lost control of Tiangong-1 last year. And now, notes Harvard astrophysicist Jonathan McDowell, it's uncertain when and where the station will fall, explaining you really can't steer these things. At this point, we may want to repeat the advice often given by star hustler Jack Horkheimer, so memorably on television years ago, to keep looking up. All right, we've got to turn to some better news after that, and we have some. This, again, is courtesy of The Week, which is the radio host's best friend on occasion. But they note in their It Must Be True section that a libidinous 100-year-old giant tortoise named Diego has almost single-handedly saved his species from extinction. In the early 60s, there were only two males and 12 female members of Chelonoidus hudensis alive on the Galapagos island of Española. So, conservationists transported Diego from the San Diego Zoo to Española, hoping he would breed. This is a mission he apparently enthusiastically embraced. The 182-pound giant has now fathered 800 babies over the past 50 years, turning the tide for the species, we hope. Conservationist James Gibb credits Diego's success with the ladies to his handsome, grizzled appearance, saying he has the look of a hardened warrior. And what female Galapagos tortoise can resist that, eh? And speaking of turtles, or turning turtle, the iconic Spirit of Sacramento paddle wheeler, which you probably have seen, dear listener, working its way between Old Sac and uh, Yolo County on the Sacramento River, uh, overturned last month and is now leaking roughly 600 gallons of diesel fuel. And no, we don't know how you can flip a paddle wheeler, but apparently somebody managed But we do note that China's Manned Space Engineering Office has been mum on the topic. Anyway, the Sacramento News and Review has put out its annual Best of Sacramento issue. We are sad to note that although when we first started this radio program, we were duly cited in the magazine for our perceived excellence. But alas, we have since then been unable to repeat our success with the magazine because that initial award came to us from, apparently, the editors. We do want to thank the editors of the News and Review, Melinda Welsh, Cosmo Garvin, Rachel LeBrock, R.V. Scheid, and so many others for their great work over the decades. At one point, there was an attempted union of this radio program with that publication, which, for a number of reasons... Didn't quite work out, but we still think very highly of the effort of uh, Jeff Von Canel's team over there and wish them well. Even if on occasion we may take issue with some of their selections in the Best of Sacramento issue, 
I mean, it's not that we would necessarily dispute their choices for best casino slash card room, but why do you have to even cite one? Best festival, California State Fair. Have you been to the State Fair? How did that win? But uh, we do have to give a nod in the direction of Nick Bruner, who was chosen by the magazine as the number two person under the best local media personality to have a drink with category. Having had a drink with Nick Bruner, I'd have to say, that's fair. And he also scored number three in the best seductive radio voice category. And although he does not necessarily do that much for Mr. Merlin and I in the seductive part of that, we would note that he has a hell of a show over there on Capitol Public Radio and that I have publicly complimented him with <laughs> his superiors over there at CPR for the fact that he really does have a good radio voice, which he knows how to use well. Even if in the instance of the best seductive radio voice category, he got edged out in the number two position by Devin Yamanaka, who does have a great radio voice. Number one winner in that one was Kitty O'Neill. And we have to give her the nod, too, even though she is stuck over there at uh, 1050 AM KFBK among a bunch of right-wing cranks. She does elevate their game a bit. All right, let's go back to the miscellaneous file. Uh, we said we might do some stats later, and it's now later, so let's, let's cite this one from TheGuardian.com. It turns out that about $130 million of the $265 million guns owned by Americans are concentrated in the hands of just 3% of adults. That is according to the most definitive portrait of U.S. gun ownership in two, day, in two decades. The Harvard-slash-Northeastern survey found that these gun super-enthusiasts have amassed an average of 17 firearms each. Overall, only 22% of the population owns a gun. I find that surprising. How about you? Oh, as I'm looking down at my papers, I realize I misspoke uh, a moment ago when I said that uh, NASA was going to spend $19 billion to go harness an asteroid. That's their whole budget for this coming fiscal year. How long did it take us to spend that in the war in Iraq? What, a week? A week and a half? Two weeks? Something like that. While we were recording this program, the news is in that the House has now voted to override President Obama's veto, making it official. It's the first time his veto has been overridden in his whole presidency. It is so odd to be rooting for a Republican-controlled Congress on this one. But, you know, that's what should be done. Oh, we did find out the one senator of the 97-to-1 of the vote who's the one. That would be Harry Reid of Nevada. Since we don't, in general, think that ill of Senator Reid, we're not going to give him our Jackass of the Week award. All right, let's go back out into space for a moment to note that uh, people studying the photographs taken of the surface of Mars are now becoming convinced that there's evidence for underground rivers. The structures seen on the Martian surface resemble very much structures on Earth that are above the location of such underground streams. Now, it's pretty clear that water can't exist for very long on the Martian surface because there's no atmosphere. It evaporates like poof. But if you go deeply underground with a lot of pressure, it's quite a different story. You could have liquid water. You could have moving liquid water. We've been saying this, we've been pointing this out on this program for, I don't know, almost a decade and a half. And I'm glad that someone's finally seeing evidence for it. So let's go to Mars and do some digging and see what we can find. And no, we don't think we're going to be able to get Elon Musk to talk to us on this program. But uh, he's got some big plans to go to Mars and out further into the solar system. And dang it, we hope he can pull it off. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. 
I'm Douglas Everett.